welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspectives from our greatest asset, our people. My name is Emily Nomare. I'm a managing director on the direct credit team here at Hamilton Lane, and I'm very excited to guest host today's episode on private credit. Today, we're speaking with my colleague, Nayef Perry, who co-heads our direct credit efforts. Nayef's been with the firm for over 10 years, where he's seen our credit strategy and capabilities grow. Nayef, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nayef, maybe just spend a minute and, and tell us about yourself. You've lived another life before you came to Hamilton Lane nearly 10 years ago that our listeners might be interested in hearing about. Certainly. So, you know, I came to Hamilton Lane from G Capital in New York City, uh, where I was doing middle market sponsor back leverage finance. And as you said today, I head up our global credit business and and sit on our investment committee. Um, you know, just looking back over the over my time here at the firm, I've had the privilege of being part of the growth and development of our platform alongside some great people and teammates. And and as I reflect that, you know, just on the genesis of our platform, you know, we started with roughly a hundred million of capital uh, from a, a which was actually a geography specific mandate from a very large and important client of ours at that juncture. And fast forward to today, our platform is north of about fifty five billion. Uh, with a growing team of over 20 dedicated professionals and four dedicated strategies, which encompass opportunistic lending, senior credit, our lower market strategy, and our separately managed account business. And you know, as you look at what is the glue that binds all this together, it's it's really an incredible team and culture, and a track record of consistent outperformance, and ultimately Hamilton Lane scale. And that scale has really enabled us uh, to really access deals and and fill that platform AUM. But enough about me. Uh, I get to co-host this as well. So uh, you've been at Hamilton Lane longer than I have. So maybe you can give the audience a little bit of your background and your journey. Yeah. Um, I Well, I have not lived a lot of lives outside of Hamilton Lane. I've been with the firm um, for nearly 15 years. So I've really spent the bulk of my career here. Um, I joined in August 2008, which was a really interesting time to start uh, as we uh, to start here, as, as we all know what, what happened after that. But it's been a great 15 years. And, and obviously today, you and I work closely together across our global private credit efforts. And, and that didn't exist 15 years ago, and certainly not in its current form. Um, but I've had a front row seat to the evolution of our business um, and really the evolution of the private credit industry. And, and thinking back um, you know, to 2008 and really the, the events of 2008 were what really set the stage and led to the growth and proliferation of private credit as a standalone asset class, which today is is more than a trillion of of, of capital um, you know and, and one as we'll talk about I think we think has significant room to grow and so on that Nayef, uh, maybe just to get started here it is obviously a really interesting time for private credit it's been described as the golden moment for the asset class by Jonathan Gray of Blackstone and I've heard you uh, describe the current landscape, the current environment, as really being in the midst of a 50-year storm. Can you explain what you mean by that? Certainly. And, and just, just to, to set the stage, the 50-year storm is a positive reference. So it's, it's a reference to a movie I love called Point Break, where this character Brody is, is waiting for this 50-year storm 
to surf an incredible wave. And right now it feels like credit is riding a really unique wave that candidly doesn't come along every year. Got it. Well, well, that explains it. And I will uh, certainly have to add that movie to my list of weekend watching. Well, look, I, it, it's a good one. I encourage you to watch it. <laughs> but, you know, I think in terms of just elaborating on, on your golden moment comment, you know, for me, I think it boils down to three key things. So one is, for starters, competition is down. And this has really been a function of the bank retrenchment. And as you look at sort of the banks pulling back in 2022, private credit was a beneficiary of that of that pullback as borrowers were seeking certainty of financing and really gravitating towards private credit to get that. Uh, this is a trend, by the way, that we've witnessed not just in 2022 and in, in the recent period, but you know the public markets generally have tended to basically go offline during periods of, of market volatility. The second one is just access to capital has become more difficult, and we found ourselves in a more lender-friendly environment where we're getting better price and better structure than in periods past. And then finally, you know, we're in a rising rate environment. And so this means that investors are in a position to enjoy more yield. Got it. And so private credit is is filling this void. Um, but at the same time, leverage buyout activity, M&A activity, they're at record lows. And so what is driving deal activity in this environment? It's a great question. I think of it as being really two drivers in this environment, uh, incremental term loan facilities and preferred pick structures. So on the incremental piece, um, the buy and build strategies that these equity sponsors are, are executing are continuing to necessitate incremental term loans as well as delayed draw term loan facilities. On the pick and preferred structures, you know, as borrowing costs have risen and you know, these structures have become very attractive to borrowers, particularly as interest expense for these structures is basically deferred. So the companies are in a position to preserve free cash flow. Uh, as you look at a lot of these structures as well, there, there are instances where the leverage profiles are also very full. So this preferred pick structure offers a very attractive feature in an instance where these companies basically can't take on incremental term debt. Got it. And and I guess just an interesting um, comment as we think about sort of the, the environment and, and deal flow in general and a little bit of what we're seeing in the market, right? And, and reflecting on our own deal flow, um, you know, as we look back to 2021 and compare that to 2022, when you think about sort of the, the environment we were in in 2021, it was an extremely active year in just capital market activity, record levels. Fast forward to, to 2022. 22, it was it was a totally different world. Um, but in both of those years, we saw our deal volume somewhere around $8 billion. Um, and in fact, in 2022, we saw 12% more opportunities than we saw the prior year. And so I think as we think about sort of some of those dynamics you talked about, we're feeling that, um, you know, we're feeling that, that, that movement and that shift to the private markets. And even 2023, I think deal volume's up over 30 to 40% this year. So really a continuation of, of some of those trends you talked about. Yeah, it's definitely been a busy year, no question. And what about behavior amongst private credit lenders? How is that shifting? You know, I think about really two shifts um, from a behavioral standpoint in the market. The first has been structure related. And so again, deal terms are more lender friendly than we've seen in years past. And leverage levels are trending more conservatively with greater levels of equity support coming from the equity sponsors that are buying these businesses. 
The second relates to risk appetite. And when you look at lender behavior across the market, lenders are generally spreading risk more widely, which means they're taking on greater portfolio diversity and they're reducing hold sizes. And the result of that behavior that, that we're witnessing is that we're seeing club participations uh, increasing slightly from where they were in years past. And in some instances, we're seeing the equity sponsors really stepping in to take a more proactive role in helping to round out that club, uh, where in years past, we may have seen maybe two to three lenders take the entirety of that, of that term loan. I do think that some of the spreading of the risk also has to do with just default risk uh, that could be in front of us and, and lenders just being a little more cautious. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, a natural question that we get from investors and, and are, you know, top of mind, I think, for a lot of folks. And, and just what is the risk of rising defaults, particularly as companies have had to navigate various stressors over the year? You've got not just rising rates, but rising costs, labor shortages, supply chain issues. Um, and, you know, I wish we had a crystal ball. We, we obviously don't. But I think if you look at the data, there's probably some reason to be optimistic, right? I think as we've seen both in the public and private markets, company operating performance and earnings are generally holding up. And in some cases, surprising on the upside. And, and you know, why is that? Well, I think businesses have had time to prepare Interest coverage ratios are generally healthier than they were leading up to the global financial crisis. Um, and, you know, when we look at sort of the the 12-month default rate that we're seeing in LCD, it's somewhere around 1.3% through March. Do we think it will increase from there? Probably. Um, but that's still relatively low by historical standards. So, you know, you could see it tick up somewhere closer to the historical average, which was around 3%. But remember, you've also got a very dynamic private credit market today that is extremely flexible, um, well capitalized, and, and didn't exist in the years going up, leading up to the, to the global financial crisis. Now, all that being said, asset selection is extremely important in this environment. And, and obviously, having a rigorous monitoring process, also really important to avoiding losers and, and even just getting ahead of issues as they come about. No question. Um, I want to take a moment, maybe just to shift gears, Emily, and, and, and now put you in the hot seat for a moment and, and get to ask you a question or two. Great. Um, but you know, I think for the audience, maybe just would love to get your perspective on what you think is driving investor interest today in private credit as an asset class. So maybe just zooming out to 10,000 feet for a moment. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Um, because when you think about sort of phase one of private credit's evolution over the last 10 years or so, um, you know, investors really started noticing the benefits of private credit because they were in search for yield. They, were, they weren't getting that from their fixed income portfolios. But fast forward to today, they are getting that yield from their fixed income portfolios. Um, now, there is still a price premium in private credit, don't get me wrong. But certainly at this point in time, um, you know, yields in the fixed income market are relatively attractive. Now, that has come with a tremendous amount of volatility. And that creates another predicament for investors, particularly when your debt and equity portfolios are experiencing volatility at the same time. 
And I think in this environment in particular, investors are seeing and feeling the value of the diversification benefits private credit can add to a portfolio as a stabilizer, as well as the cash flow characteristics, which tend to be shorter duration in nature than their private equity counterpart. And even if I just take a step back, private credit has outperformed the public credit markets in 21 of the last 22 years. Yields in private credit are certainly more attractive today relative to the last several years since, as, as you pointed out earlier, this is largely a floating rate asset class. Um, and I think investors are smart. They're taking note of the supply-demand dynamics that you also described earlier and you know, and this point in time in particular to create the potential for outsized returns. You know, it's obviously clear that that private credit is benefiting from this rising rate environment. But I think a curiosity on my mind, and I'm sure for others out there, is, you know, amidst that improved yield that investors are experiencing, in your view, is that reflected in private markets valuation, specifically for private credit? Yeah, I mean, so anecdotally, um, yes, our, you know, as we look across sort of our, our portfolio, yields are up over 300 basis points over the last year. So absolutely, we're starting to see that benefit reflected in portfolios. That really started, call it, in the, the second half of last year. And so I think we'll continue to see that flow through um, you know, to, to the performance numbers. But on the valuation question specifically, private credit is not totally immune to valuation pressures um, you know, that we've seen across the markets as managers generally apply a mark-to-market methodology, typically using discounted cash flow methodology. And so as discount rates go up, values go down. And we've seen some of that in the industry. As we look at sort of performance in sort of the first three quarters of, of 2022, performance in, in private credit was down in sort of the low single digits. But you know the bond market performance was down in, in the teens or mid-teens. And so you know, while we're not entirely immune to these valuation pressures, you certainly don't see the same magnitude and same intensity of volatility that you do in the public markets. And maybe just along those lines, Nayef, um, you know, in this environment, maybe talk a little bit about just risk and return, um, you know, and what our expectations are going forward. Of course. I mean, I think we, we've both been probably saying a very similar, or singing a very similar tune, which is, you know, this is obviously an attractive time for credit and specifically sub-strategies like senior credit where investors are sitting at the top of the capital structure and in a position to generate attractive unlevered returns. Uh, I think a good example of that is <clears throat> if you look at three months SOFR, you know, we're north of 5% today, right? So assuming a 1% SOFR floor, investors have picked up 400 basis points or so of yield in the last year for a similar level of risk. Uh, so a deal priced at SOFR plus 500 with a 1% floor, uh, which was earning 6% a year ago, is now yielding close to 10%. And when you look at the structural aspects of, of the landscape, you know leverage and loan-to-values are more conservative today, and equity sponsors are having to support their businesses with greater levels of cash equity. So overall, this is a you know, we view this as a credit enhancement for the strategy overall. I think as you look forward, our perspective is that rates will remain elevated for the foreseeable future. Therefore, you know, I think credit investors are in a, in a nice position to continue to enjoy enhanced yields. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, a, a benefit for for credit investors picking up that you know that additional yield. But maybe let's talk about operating performance. I think that's sort of the the natural question in in terms of you know in this environment. How is operating performance holding up across businesses? I know we we alluded to that earlier, but there's obviously been a lot of headwinds over the last year. Um, you know, the supply chains, rising costs, labor shortages, higher borrowing costs. How are companies dealing with this? Are there any surprises that you're seeing out there? No question. Inflationary pressures and rising interest expense have have put pressure on companies. Uh, I think anecdotally, we saw. You know, across the the leveraged lending landscape, we saw elevated container shipping costs, increased labor expense, rising input costs, all put pressure on companies in this environment. I think in response to that, we've seen companies across the private markets landscape uh, take a few proactive approaches, so or a couple at least. So one is companies have right-sized cost where possible to protect margins, and you know I think as we've alluded to earlier, this is one of the most anticipated recessions in history. And companies have had time to prepare for that. I think the second piece is certain borrowers have been very proactive in either hedging their interest expense or in more extreme circumstances have had to seek some type of interest relief from their lenders just to manage a rising interest rate environment. I think when I when I reflect back on our own portfolio, you know, uh, not that we're perfect, but I think we've been in a very fortunate position. In fact, we just did an analysis on our own you know, portfolio, which is pretty broad across, you know, billions of dollars of loan value. Uh, and I think what we've seen is that from close of the average loan to kind of present day, uh, on the average, our EBITDA is up over 40% across our portfolio investments. So I think kind of back to the point around asset selection that was made earlier, it's really important to be very disciplined in terms of asset selection in an environment like we're in. Got it. That that makes sense. And and maybe just to um, make this a little bit more tangible, and maybe provide an example of a, a deal, um, you know, and and get into sort of some of the some of the specifics there. If there's anything that comes to mind that you would describe as either unique to the market or or something that you know is is particularly indic- indicative of the the pricing environment we're in, or sort of the the opportunistic environment that we're seeing. Gosh, I mean, there's there's a lot to draw from there, um, but you know, just to use one I, again, just taking a step back, I I'd alluded to two trends in this environment. One was um, incremental term loan facilities. The other was preferred pick structures, and you know, one that we're in process of closing, I think, is a good example of that preferred uh, demand right now in this environment. Just by way of background, the company is a leading business services provider to the financial services industry. Uh, the company's raising some incremental preferred equity with debt-like characteristics to repay its revolving credit facility to fund some immediate acquisitions that it has in the pipeline, and then ultimately bolster its balance sheet with cash to fund future acquisitions. As you look at the leverage profile of this company, it's it's generally full at a roughly six times. Therefore, some of the incremental term capacity is, is probably tapped out. But as you look at the enterprise value of this company, it's it's somewhere close to 20 times on an EBITDA multiple basis. So from a loan-to-value standpoint, the preferred opportunity that sits through uh, nine turns deep is pretty attractive with a lot of strong equity cash cushion sitting below us. Interesting. And, and what is the sort of return profile on something like that um, you know and and when you say debt characteristics of a preferred equity deal what do you mean by that sure 
Um, the return profile is going to be duration specific, but generally, you know, we're underwriting this opportunity in the mid to high teens, so it should be at a very attractive opportunity. What we view as a very stable credit. Uh, from a you know to your question around what we refer to when when I say debt like characteristics, uh, we really refer to four characteristics in these types of deals. So the first is similar to a credit instrument; these have to have some type of annual or contractual coupon. Secondly, uh, from a structural standpoint, we view these as needing to have a conservative loan to value profile. So in this case, we're you know just inside of about fifty percent on a loan to value basis, which we find attractive. Uh, third is you know, these instruments have to have what we view as credit-like documentation. So that might include things like debt incurrence limitations or protections uh, for us as the quote-unquote lender in this situation. And then the last piece is just having some type of maturity mechanism. So either that's through a defined maturity date in the document, or it's a structure that gets more expensive with time, which really encourages the borrower uh, to refinance that credit in a timely fashion. Got it. That makes sense. What about on the flip side, um, in terms of sort of deal deals that we're seeing? Are there certain dynamics or behaviors in this environment that you know we're particularly sensitive to that may be automatic red flags um, or automatic declines from an investment standpoint? I think it comes down to to credit philosophy for the manager. However, for us, you know, I think the more venture growth oriented financing, such as ARR loans, tend to be a little tougher for us. Uh, there's often a bet on the company turning cash flow positive, and lenders are often in a position to have to hang their hat on the amount of liquidity runway that these companies have, which I think in in some of the recent deals we've seen is plus or minus 18 months of liquidity. And, and I think as folks can appreciate, a lot can happen as we consider a potential for a recession in front of us and some of the headwinds that just venture as an asset class has experienced uh, from a fundraising and other standpoint. I think it's also worth noting that not all these ARR facilities transition to a leverage test against EBITDA over the whole period. Therefore, that adds a layer of speculation to the transactions from our point of view. I think it's also worth commenting that these are not bad deals. They're just outside our risk appetite, and we've been happy with our ability to find good risk-adjusted returns in what we view as more mature EBITDA-positive businesses backed by leading sponsors in their areas of expertise. Gotcha. Well, Nayef, we are uh, we're nearing the end here. That that went quickly. The conversation, um, and I know we've covered a lot of territory. And maybe just um, let's wrap up here with with a question we hear often um, as we're talking to investors. And and really, what's next for the asset class? Is this a moment in time in terms of the opportunity, or do the fundamentals here suggest that that the asset class will endure? I think. From my perspective, you know, all the things we talked about today, from a performance standpoint, you know, performance in private credit has been stable and consistent. Um, you know, the market opportunity is is large and, and growing. And, and the macro trends suggest that, you know, the banks will continue to pull back from lending. And so that will create continued opportunities. Um, you know, so it, it feels like private credit will really be a, a permanent and, and increasingly important fixture in sort of the, the broader lending landscape. I tend to agree. Well, I think that's it. Nayef, thank you for joining. Thank you, Emily. And thank you to our audience for listening to another episode of Private Markets Made Human. Thanks for having us today. And look out for our next episode where Katie will be back to uncover some reasonably outlandish predictions. <laughs> <laughs>